0: Hello and welcome. My name is Jolene. And I'm Emma. Two costume designers who shared love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the scenes to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and their costumes that are simply to die for.
1: On this episode of To Die For, we are diving, or should I say snorkeling, into Hammer Horror, we'll be taking a look at the production company's horror flicks over the years, from monsters to Hitchcockian noirs to the gothic period pieces that define what we know as the Hammer Girl today. We'll also be taking a look at those 18th century period pieces and investigating just how period accurate they really are. Jolene, here is a question for you. Given the bonkers backlog of like 300 films that Hammer has made... What was your first Hammer film that you remembered watching and what do you think in general of the legacy that they've left today?
0: So I had only just recently, like I, I kind of knew about Hammer in the background of my horror like catalog. But it was really when we started becoming friends that I actually started like taking a lot of notice and interest in it because it, it's something that you really enjoy. So the first one was the Vampire Lovers that I watched last year yes. for our gender identity yeah. episode. And just looking at the other, you know, Hammer girls in the, they they all kind of look the same. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they're very unique in their own way within each film. But as a whole, like, I guess how you would categorize, like, what does a final girl look like, or what is, you know, they do kind of all have the same attributes to them. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, we've talked about this before that they are all of these films are kind of in the same time period so that late victorian like 1865 london through like 1900 almost but not quite turn of the century so it's interesting
1: yeah yeah absolutely it is kind of fun to compare what we think of as like the classic horror final girl today Mm -hmm. and what we think of as the hammer girl um because they both have a very distinctive look that is kind of shared across the board Mm -hmm. um And yes, The Vampire Lovers, it's one of my favorite Hammer films, favorite vampire films, favorite films in general. I think it's great um, and just kind of ridiculous. I would change the plot a little bit. I do think that the lesbian vampire should reign supreme, but whatever. Um, (laughs) But uh, I think that that is a great sort of... um, It's a great film that I think defines a lot of what we think of in retrospect when we think of Hammer Horror. Yeah. Well, you know, when you look into it, the vast history of Hammer goes far beyond um, horror. Of course, they did dive a ton into sci-fi with uh, quarter mass as well. And that was like kind of its big turning point. Um, But I'm really interested in kind of how Hammer got started and how it shifted throughout the years to then its own little golden age, which was different than the golden age of horror that we think of when we think of like slashers. Yeah. Um, hammer's golden age ended when that began but hammer films is one of the oldest film companies in the world it was founded in i think november of 1934 um mm-hmm. so it's been around
0: <laughs> i didn't realize that in my research they were a distribution company first before the war mm. and then so they were just selling films and then because of the war because they're based in england you know they weren't able to do a lot during those wartime years. So they were doing some war pictures. They were still kind of selling films and distributing them to different theaters and cinemas around England. And then after the war, it was the son of Hammers. Okay, so William Hindus and James Karius were the two founders in London, England. That was pre-war. And then I know that his son, Harris's son, took over for the company in the 50s. And he was the one who really just jump-started this, you know, what we're calling is their golden age of horror because American Mm -hmm. horror was really into atomic horror at this time. Or just globally, too. I mean, Japanese horror, that kind of stuff where we have, you're seeing those big monsters like Godzilla and Attack of the 50-Foot Woman and all all those B-movies that that people know and they love, but they're not, you know, they're popular in their niches and then... In 1957, The Curse of Frankenstein, which was like their first big film after, you know, kind of adapting BBC radio dramas and BBC like specials, which that courtmaster that you were talking about, that was a BBC special that they put on film. Um, and this one was starring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And that really just jump- jumpstarted their careers and the start of Hammer's Golden Age. And it's, I mean, we'll get into this, but it's interesting the persona that they created for these women in these films because a lot of them were done during the Hays Code, which didn't just affect Hollywood. It affected films across the board in the Western filmmaking world. So they were under the Hayes Code. Yeah. And it's interesting, and we'll get into that as well, like when they start to decline, why they're starting to decline, and it's post-Hays, and uh, that's, that's a really interesting journey for them too. So, yeah. yeah. But I, I definitely, I learned some, I've watched a really interesting documentary, um, Hammer... Uh, the studio that drips blood, I believe was the name of it for a really long time. They worked with the same crew. So they had, which is really unheard of in movie making is that you're permanently employed somewhere that never happens. Right. So they had <laughs> the same crew, you know, the a cycle of a few directors on retainer, a few writers on retainer that they would just kind of cycle through. So the crew of Hammer really made the looks what they were. They were shooting in Bray Studios, which was an old mansion in right outside of London. And... They didn't have a lot of budget money and they basically utilized this entire mansion, every room, every space to its full capacity. Because of that, because of the creativity of of these different crew members lighting and set design and costumes and stuff, they were able to not only save money by filming like three or four films at a time to, to release, like, you know, however many films they released a year, which was quite a lot for a film studio. They, you know, it had to be between like 10 and 11 that they were pumping out each character right. year, But just that they made them look so completely different each film that you didn't you don't realize that they're filming in the same location for a bulk of their filming uh, production history
1: career, which is pretty impressive. Wow. That's so crazy. So how many years did that span of, of them filming in the same location? Um, so it looks like it went up
0: until like 68 Wow, that's wild because their
1: voice and their style and what they sort of leaned into doing shifted a lot. I mean, I think that before they started doing kind of the sexy Mm -hmm. vampire thing, they, you know, were still doing period pieces in the form of monster flicks. Was that kind of the location? Because that's when I think about it. They have the same kind of like foggy atmospheric setting, but um, they do feel like different places, Um, Or you don't really think about it because you're just like, oh, this looks like a Hammer film. And you don't realize it looks like a Hammer film because it's exactly the same people making it in exactly the same place.
0: So even like they would use the same cast. So they filmed the Rasputin and the Mad Monk, which was um, Christopher Lee. And then they filmed another film with him and they just like switched roles and they switched I think it was the Dra- it was it was Dracula that they filmed with Christopher Lee and so they they were talking about the scene on the ice where Dracula is running on on the ice at the end of the film and then gets fallen into the ice at the end which I didn't know I is this I have to look into we need to do a whole episode on vampire lore cuz I didn't know that vampires couldn't be near running water <laughs> That's a new <laughs> that's one a, yeah,
1: That's a whole episode That's a new it's one like cuz Angel rules. takes a
0: shower in the in the series Angel and I'm yeah. like
1: so what's
0: going on here? <laughs> so that's another deep dive. Just like an uh, addendum
1: to the rules, right. I guess.
0: <laughs> but And how they use that same set when Rasputin falls out the window at the end of the film and dies. He oh, falls into that ice. Amazing.
1: Yeah.
0: So they're basically just utilizing whatever they have for the little money that they have. And uh, I, you know, but like that, that is filmmaking. I think when you have, the, and you hear this from artists all the time, that when you don't have a lot of money, that's when you kind of are the more creative because you have to figure out, well all right, well, how do I make this work? Because I can't just buy my way out of this. And that's when this stuff, you know, looks better. We look at films like Nightmare on Elm Street. We look at films like um, *Like Carrie, like all these films that are using practical effects. They didn't have a lot of money. And, you know, we keep coming back to them because it works.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's interesting how Hammer has shifted their focus, like each few years or more so decades, but I feel like they switched a couple times during the early years um, they shifted their focus as far as genre. Um, they kind of started in, you know, like pre quarter mass experiment in like the forties when they kind of reformed, I think probably due to the, um, the second world war sort of afterwards, because there was this growing demand for like British supported and produced movies. Yeah. Um, and almost all of those were like crime capers and like, the, the boys' adventure, like adventure stories and that kind of thing. And so they kind of started with that. And it wasn't until after the quarter mass experiment that they started to shift their focus um, to horror. And so that was kind of like, uh, which I think was 1955 that that came out, kind of the big shift that you saw. Mm-hmm. um and then they start to kind of play into 50s horror because at that point crime dramas were sort of struggling and people were craving something exciting and we talk about probably probably the most we talk about the 50s is in our queer horror episode um yeah. where we really dive into like the um the atmosphere of uh horror in culture in the 50s but it was interesting because in the atomic age you think about how conservative families were but then you think about how atomic and explosive and ridiculous and campy the horror films were that people would go see and like the conservative picket fence families that you're thinking of would go see those films yeah um, you know But
0: it, and it was totally different for london or england as well or well, in mm-hmm. parts of western europe because you think about 50s culture in the states and it's you know, new appliances and, and milkshakes, you know, like, and-, milkshakes <laughs> and this like dramatized, idealized version of the quote unquote, the American dream of all these GIs came back. They were given GI bills and they either got to go to college or they got houses, they got to start their families. That's why, you know, we have that baby boomer generation was mm-hmm. because of all of that. But in England specifically in England, like they were rebuilding. France was rebuilding their cities. And infrastructure was completely mm-hmm. decimated from the war because of the occupations. So fashion wasn't progressing. They were looking to America. So I feel like by the end of the 50s, you know, 10 years after the end of World War II, you are finally seeing the rebuilding of of England specifically through mm-hmm. these films, and you're getting that escapism that people were find, that have been craving the entire decade because they just want to think about something else. Like, they don't want to think about these noir's anymore,
1: where... Right, it's not not exciting anymore. And it is interesting when you think about just the cultural atmosphere and, like, the zeitgeist of the U.S. versus Mm -hmm. Europe, when you're thinking about Europe and England and, and where they were at as a whole, and you compare what was popular in horror at the time. So, like you mentioned, like, atomic horror was very... Huge and massive, and you know, milkshake drive in America was eating it up, but right
0: because we had we had funds and means, right? To we were able right?
1: to, we were just right. kind of like having fun, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, <laughs> to a degree on the surface, yeah, well, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, when you think about um, the British produced films, um, by Hammer specifically, they were much darker. They, you know, yeah. after the quarter mass experiment, they made history with its first full color creature feature, which was the curse of Frankenstein. And that looked visually so different to um, you know, something like the Blob. Absolutely. You know, it had the blood and the gore and the extravagant costumes and it was just completely different. It was it was darker. Everything felt darker. The Hammer produced films through the 50s and through the 70s Um, And the reason I, you know, I kind of associate um, the transition between the Atomic Age into, um, you know, through a few different iterations, but into the Slasher Golden Age with the American Zeitgeist at the time. Um, And I feel like that's why Hammer didn't continue to flourish when that time came around, um, because they were doing something entirely different
0: they were and they were really going back to their roots i mean england ireland scotland they're very literary progressive cultures like that's what they're known for they're known for their writers and their playwrights and this rich artistic history that we get a lot of our material from so they're they're really reverting back to victorian london with a lot of these stories these gothic horror novels that they're now adapting into the you know into the film world again but in a different way like universal era monsters were doing it in a very very fantastical way where it was pure escapism we were in the throes of the depression when the all of these movies came out and that was the first iteration of you know taking the these works of literature and and making them into films Mm -hmm. but when england and hammer does it in the 50s First of all, they're in color, which is totally different. Right. And they're much darker because the world has not only been through a depression, but it's been through a war. Yeah, and so the entire outlook of the world has kind of changed a little bit. Now, that's not to say that like there wasn't that hopeful starry-eyed like space-age futuristic look that we still get from a lot of the 50s and the 60s stuff that we that they had at the time, but there was this realism to it that like shit went down, it was really bad, and how do we tell those stories in a way that's comfortable and safe but still talking to the people? And I think that's why Victorian London works because it was, like, a time of thriving in London, but it was also really seedy. There was, like, right. like the Ripper murders, and there was so much poverty and so much, like, Darkness. women who, right, who were sex workers that were being murdered or kidnapped or whatever. And you know, just watch, mm-hmm. you know, any of those films... About Jack the Ripper, and you'll see what was happening at that time, and so it was like mirroring it, but in a safe way, like right. all, a lot of American horror does.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, you can see this too, just in um, Hitchcockian horror, yeah. um, which we also have an episode about. If you want to hear us go a little more in depth about um, Hitchcock and our thoughts around um, Hitchcockian noir, but um, Hammer also tried to kind of replicate this style. Um, in their own way Um, and it's funny because when I think about um, The Snorkel which was one of their um, releases in the 50s it felt as close to Hitchcock style as like a Hammer film could get it has like very much like 1948 rope vibes but it's funny because it's this kind of beachy flick but it's nothing like any you know teen beach movie or TV show like Digit or something that you know you would see gain massive popularity In the U.S., I mean, stylistically, as far as what they're wearing, it's very similar to what one would wear um, in one of the Teen Beach movies of, like, the U.S., Um, but the whole film feels so much darker, so regardless of what they're wearing, it feels like an entirely different tone, Um, and they've—it's kind of funny because they've taken— what feels like the teen beach genre and turned it into something very dark. And so we do see Hammer lean into other, um, you know, non-Gothic horror, especially in like the 50s era-ish where they would kind of, before they really, I think, honed in on that being their strength, um, they dabbled in so much that they did do some films that weren't um, like an 18th century period piece. However, it still felt very... You know British at the time you know it felt very dark and it didn't feel like a flick that you would see in the U.S. at all when you compare that uh, just the culture of the 50s it was very weird time um, for media, I think, in general.
0: Yeah, yeah. that was one of the things that I did notice, was that they were really experimental with a lot of their subject matter and and the way that they presented their Mm -hmm. subject matter, which I found really interesting because, I mean, we've been saying this the last few minutes, but just, you do get a lot of the same of this sci-fi horror, and here's a studio that's doing something completely different. Mm -hmm. Even if it on the surface looks slightly similar, it's pulling you in, and then it's saying, no, we're experimenting, we're going to challenge you and we're going to flip this on its head right
1: well exactly and it you see that even more so um, as him moves into the 60s where they've fully been they've developed their success in the horror genre and so they're seeking out creating more horror um and they're also looking at like literary characters um to further adapt and so that was like a main point of reference for them um i know that let's say i'm pretty sure that they had A million literary adaptions from novels by the likes of Dennis Wheatley, H. Ryder Haggard, and J.B. Presley. Um, So like The Devil Rides Out, The Witches, She, The Vengeance of She, The Old Dark House, all literary adaptions. Um, And so they were able to take stories from literature and turn them out relatively quickly um, into these Horror period pieces. It felt like at the time in the '60s they had really developed their uh, what's the word method per se. You know that they had they had it down yeah. um, as far as how they yeah. were going to be producing things. Um, they also actually in the '60s produced um, a television series. So it was an anthology series called Journey to the Unknown. And so I think that you know kind of coming off of the uh, the Twilight Zone success um, and just in general the boom of anthologies. Uh, Hammer wanted a slice of the pie, and they and they got it. But yeah, they they were also at this time kind of leaning more so into um, psychological thrillers, or rather, they began to experiment more. Um, and so they did still lean into noirs, but it didn't feel like a crime thriller anymore. Um, they went a little more further into the psychological thriller, um, and they also got a lot of really big names. Uh, in their films. and so like the nanny starred Betty Davis.
0: <laughs> yes, I did see clips from that one. that one that looked one looks'
1: so creepy. I've never seen the full film, but I know that that was something that was it stuck out as far as that era of Hammer. Because it felt both campy and stylistic, while also very much terrifying, and gets in your head and stays there. Yeah. But this—that's kind of what was interesting to me about the '60s. Um, I'm pretty sure they did also in the '60s. Let's see. Did they do? When did they do Sister Hyde? That was maybe early '70s, right? Yeah, that was '71. Um, But you can kind of see as they kind of moved throughout the 60s, sort of the influence it had on films like that. Because Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which was 1971, also felt very much like a psychological take on horror. Um, And Hammer remained pretty dark, I would say, throughout the 60s. Um, But they were developing their voice after they've developed their methods, sort of. So they've kind of figured it out and what works for them, and then in the 60s started to develop and hone in on what made them unique, which was their Mm -hmm. Gothic pieces, um, which we saw more of in the late 60s and into the 70s.
0: Yeah, and what really surprised me about their Gothic pieces was their use of color. Mm -hmm. Like, when you look down into the crowd of, of Londoners in these Gothic pieces, you think, you know, when you think of Gothic horror, you think of blacks and reds and these really dark, Dark colors, but there was a lot of pastels. There's a lot of purples. There was a lot of like lime greens. And and it was the style of the time to have these hats with these huge feathered pieces on top. And, you know, this was the era of the bustle. So, like the bum pad that Mm -hmm. came out and the layered skirts in that way. And it was like the development into the S curve or what we know as the Gibson girl, which is like the turn of the century look. Kind of Um, Edwardian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this was, like, just before that. But, I mean, yeah, it was really surprising to see how many bright psychedelic colors that they used, especially in those later mm-hmm. 60s films, because those were the colors at the time. So that was a really nice yeah. contrast for what was happening, because usually the men were yeah. really dark. And so you see the women, specifically prostitutes is what I noticed in these films. They were the ones with these really bright jewel tone colors. It
1: reminds me of kind of a... Um you know, this was in the uh, the early 70s, um, but Ken Russell's The Devils, like just as far as mm-hmm. like, that was way more intentionally psychedelic and surreal. Yeah. But um, this kind of feels like a little bit of a watered down version of it. I also wonder if Ken Russell was inspired at all by Hammer Films. Um, but in the same vein, when I think about um, Hammer Films of the 60s, um, as, and I also think this about uh, The Devils, is that it's really interesting and a very, it's a great example of looking at how a period piece can be influenced by the period that it is made in and how a period piece will look different every year, even if it's set in the same year, just on the basis that it was made in a different period and that we have a different interpretation. And, you know, if a costume designer is allowed to take creative liberties um, when it comes to the period costume, they want to make it maybe a little bit of sort of a re- retro, uh, not re- not retro futurism, retro pastism. <laughs> um, if yeah. they want to, you know, put a little bit of flair into it that makes it a little more modern or unique, and maybe they're not trying to go for realism. That the flair that they would put on it would be a direct influence from the current time that they are making it in. Um, you know, I think Little Women. The recent Little Women is a good oh, example yeah. of that, and a good example of like a period film that is made now. Also, Bridgerton, also a good yeah. example. Um, I'm not a big like yeah. period drama person, surprisingly, because I love period fashion and I love period <laughs> horror films, um, genre films in general. But um, just on you know the basis of style alone, you can see modern influences and decisions made, and you can also see yeah. the director's influence in all of these. Hammer was very much developing into this kind of psychosexual territory as we got into the late 60s and as we, um, mainly in the 70s, and that also was influenced by what was the voice of Hammer and what were the directors wanting uh, the period to look like. And so you that's where right. you got to see a lot of those shifts,
0: yeah. And it was like a direct callback to politically and socially what was happening exactly. at the time. well, I was going to circle back to what you were saying about um period films being influenced by today. Um, a lot of that, too, is has to do with the fact that, like our modern cuts are are flattering on modern women. So a lot of modern actresses know how to dress their
1: mm-hmm. bodies
0: for today but when you put them in a period costume that might not necessarily be flattering or is considered flattering of the time like specifically with 20s mm-hmm. clothing 20s clothing looks good on nobody unless you are literally a board mm-hmm. if you are just flat chested and just no butt and just a board of a right, woman, literally like, a stick like an <laughs> actual stick person. literally a stick yeah for yeah sure. but because of the way people's body shapes have changed because you know like style stylistically Things ebb and flow out of trends for, like, body types and different things like that. They, they will tailor period costumes to kind of fit a modern woman. And I'm not just talking about sizes, but just, like, what we think of, like, sexuality-wise, mm-hmm. too. Like, what we deem as sexy was probably not sexy, at the time why well, it was probably really revealing, especially in like a lot of these 1800
1: right. sto- <laughs> stories,
0: but you know, they'll tweak things to make them more flattering on modern women in that way. And I was listening to the Made Cosmetics used to have a podcast, and they were talking about historical uh, cosmetics, and they were saying that that is the one thing in films that films will never get mm. right because modern women. Will never do their face up specifically like that period because it's so different from how we view ourselves today. Mm, that, that makes so much see sense. See themselves in that. Yeah, yeah. So like you think of like turn of the century makeup was literally just rouge and a little bit of lip and maybe some a little bit of eye, but like to, to some modern women that really like contour their faces and do all this stuff, that's not enough. Right. So it's interesting like like what you were just saying before, Emma, how both periods kind of marry and influence Yeah,
1: exactly. It it kind of creates a, you know, a surreal kind of new era, um, in some cases. I mean right. yes, there are films that feel very, very accurate. Um, but as far as like the sixties and also the seventies, um actually the entire <laughs> up until the seventies I would say um, yeah. Everything was very theatrical. Um, it felt very stage. Um, only yeah. now has, uh, I feel like, film media sort of moved away from the theater interpretation of period dress. But the difference with Hammer really came when they started to really clue into, like, what if we started really sexualizing these women? Yeah, um, And that kind of became our thing. I mean, they... Essentially, what they were doing is they meshed these worlds of like this playboy fantasy and the gothic core that they were already doing and of course this is on top of how women were already portrayed in in films and particularly hammer films um which still was pretty you know voluptuous and women in general that the male gaze wants women to be appealing oftentimes the victim that's pretty unfortunately standard Um, especially in like the Hays Code era, but also, you know, something that film in general has struggled with and wrestled with throughout the years to shift and, you know, but there was definitely a very intentional, it wasn't the, um, what one could say, the baseline of how women were sexualized in film, but that they took it to a different level, Um, literally casting playboy girls (laughs) in films. Oh, yeah. um, Particularly Twins of Evil in the 70s, uh, the twins that were in the film were um, already playmates. Um, and so I mm-hmm. thought that that was interesting. Um, but that's really where you see Hammer shift how they're doing their costume was just that period at the end of the sixties. And once they started kind of cluing into like the lesbian vampire craze of the seventies, that's when things really started to shift and you started to see them keep their theatrical air to the costuming, but that they started to use more revealing fabric. Um, they to- they toyed with the, with the cuts of things and, you know, the shirts were lower and, or the dresses, they were pretty much always dresses, were lower. Everything was tighter. Um, and that kind of became what they're known for. And to this day, I mean, there is a bountiful amount of media covering Hammer Girls from the 60s and 70s. And so even though Hammer has this long run of history, I think when we think about the Hammer Girl, we're really thinking about um, kind of the the horror pinup girl of the 60s and Hmm. 70s. Um, There's even a book released in 2009 called Hammer Glamour, which honestly I really want. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's basically just covering the women who, many say, redefine the horror genre. The sexed up, you know, lesbians and s- sexy Dracula, you know, played by Christopher Lee as a, like, emo hunky boy. And, you know, his brides now have like, pin up sex appeal because it's the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Um, And that is really, I think, what Hammer was known for and what it's still known for. And so even though in the 70s, they kind of fell off a bit, they, at the end, there really was their legacy.
0: Well, I think also in the 70s, the perception of women started to change with the women's movement. Yeah, completely. So much so that... You know, pinup wasn't really a thing anymore, Uh and the way that women were now demanding more roles and and different types of roles, not just, like, the object role, really did change, and that's when we see the studio start to falter. But I'm curious for you, when do you – because you've watched so many of these – when do you think the Hammer Girl, quote-unquote – like truly started can you pinpoint a film where you're like oh that's where it
1: started that's a really good question um when i think of the hammer girl i think of twins of evil and the vampire lovers so i think of the lesbian vampire thing um which is 1970 1971 mm-hmm. and that's really when i think about it because i also associate just In general, like the decline um, financially of the British film industry um, really hit in like 1970, kind of end of the 60s, because the arrival of color television contributed to this really sharp decline in box office um, revenue for films. And so it kind of at that point forced Hammer to think about ways they could spice up their films, (laughs) So to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's also when you see, I mean, that's also when you see, um, you know, female vampires and like Countess Dracula and like a co-production with the Shaw brothers. And you see all these like crossover things and like karate horror Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires and stuff. like Yeah, that was super yeah. interesting that they tried to do Kung cons- Fu. It was, <laughs> it it was a, a very interesting choice, but I also see that as mm-hmm. when they started to sexualize their female leads even more um, than they did mm-hmm. before. But then again, and this is something we get more into in the queer horror episode where we talk about lesbian vampires is kind of the catch-22 of it all, where it's like women are now in a more powerful uh, role. And so the women right. in these films are very powerful, but do they get avenged by men in the end? Usually, so it's like uh, right um, and it's one type, it's of one, one type, type of like, woman a, usually a yeah. blonde. yeah it's yeah and so that's sort of definitely early 70s, they're vampire films in the early 70s what I associate with the Hammer Girl. Um, and when I think about the Hammer Girl, I think of uh, you know a blowout usually bangs are a middle part it's a very like specific kind of blowout as well like i can't even i mean it's just the early 70s blowout and it kind of remained that way and it was kind of this it's funny because it's supposed to be naturalistic but it's obviously not at all um and again that's where you see the periods mesh because the hair and the makeup was not period at all um that was not 18th century hair and makeup that was definitely seventies, yeah. 60s. 60s like yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah yeah exactly
1: that was 60s <laughs> and 70s hair and makeup which I think that that combination in hindsight is what really draws people to the look of the hammer girl because it's so unique and you weren't really seeing other films do sexy gothic horror the way they were doing and so that's what I associate, I also associate it with empire cuts Um, and that's something that When I was researching, um, I wanted to ask you about, because I was looking into, um, you know, I was looking into The Hammer Girl, I was thinking, you know, what films do I very specifically associate with The Hammer Girl? And both of those films, The Vampire Lovers and Twins of Evil, are set in the 18th century. But when you look at the costuming, Mm -hmm. aside from the materials and the the sheer, you know, (laughs) chiffon that a lot of their costumes were made of that were obviously not period, the silhouette of the Empire waist. Did not feel very 18th century. That felt more post French Revolution, yeah. um, 18th century, which is really <laughs> funny because when I saw what they were wearing, I was like, this is obviously after the French Revolution because that's when you saw the boom of cottons and more, you know, the naturalistic. I mean, it's not naturalistic now, but compared to what we saw from the Rococo era of fashion, which was very much yeah. the 18th century. Um, After that, you saw it shift for a while. I mean, eventually we got a little more flamboyant, but the empire waist, the white, the um, what I think would be considered a more simple version of, um, you know, coming out of the Rococo era. I just thought that that was interesting that it wasn't, as far as accuracy, it wasn't that accurate, even like it didn't feel like an 18th century sexy version it felt like 19th century sexy version in an 18th century film what do you think
0: (laughs) yeah they were they were off by at least like 80 or 60 years because the empire waste is a regency exactly and that's like think of like you know jane austen's novel Mm -hmm. like pride and prejudice and stuff like that the curly Um, optus very greek right absolutely yeah yeah right the greek revival in the regency era of theater, of literature, because in the 18th century, women, uh, well, I'm sure that they were sexy to men then, but what we would think of as sexy was not happening then. I mean, these women were wearing shifts and bodices and lace up, you know, over bodices and they were wrapped in over wraps and... That was with the the bum pad, and then in France you got a little bit more revealing of a silhouette, but it was more about the fineness of your fabric. And they had these really amazing undergarments called panniers mm-hmm. that would sometimes like this is just how crazy fashion is too that like they were basically hip pads that went all the way out in right or left in either direction on your body, so that. Whatever embroidery or fine silks that you have on your fabric could be displayed like a piece of art mm-hmm. on your dress. And they became so wide in France that uh, staircases were actually redesigned so women could, like, enter their homes and go up mm-hmm. staircases, which is pretty incredible. So like that would be more of what they. Would have been wearing in the 18th century But I think it's not a very flattering Like it is flattering for that time But it's not like sexy and erotic Right, it was more Enticing in that way where an empire waist Is like, we talked about this in the gender identity Episode where like your breasts Are being highlighted because everything is pushed up And the corsetry is really Different under your garment So, you know, you have a lower Scooped neck, so more of your Flesh is showing Mm Versus like a gown In the 18th century where Less of your chest and flesh is showing yeah. Also just I will always say this in every historical episode That we do but you do You never wear a corset against your skin That's that's a Hollywood trick to make women look A lot sexier on film but Don't do it you, in that period, <laughs> no, You're doing a shift and then you're putting Your corset on top. Your shift is basically like your underwear Your camisole, mm-hmm. your bra So that was never happening Right <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, in, in the 18th century, that was where we saw what I feel like is the 80s of the pre-21st century.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it was the drama. Yeah, I mean, you got you some know? crossover. Yeah. And like the, the men's coats were still the same. Men's the, the men's, men's coats right? were all right. That
1: felt more like, you yeah, know, all-purpose pilgrim yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, and like knickers and britches Were still being worn by men The idea of like a fop was still being introduced Into the early 1800s Until about like 1820s Because French courts were still really much a thing Because you have to think, like Marie Antoinette Was the French Revolution Uh era And she was like the late 1700s So uh, there's a lot of crossover And people, you know, didn't just throw their garments out Like how we Were talking about crossover in just More Uh recent decades, like you're not gonna just throw things out of your closet, you're going to wear them. Right. And especially if you're poor, you're not going to, you know, you're going to recycle your clothes. Well, the trend so.
1: cycle yeah. in the 18th century was much, much slower. So when we're talking about, you know, comparing yes. even just different centuries, um, let alone, you know, just, the different sections of one century, the trend cycle was very, very slow. And there really wasn't that much change. And again, when you when we are thinking, you know, about fashion in the 18th century, you also immediately think about um, what rich people wore, because that's what you see the most of right. the media when people just, you know, talk about, fashion history but especially if you were poor which was the vast majority of people um you wouldn't throw out your stuff and even if you were rich you wouldn't throw out your stuff as quickly as we do now just because it took longer to get things made and right. trends were slower yeah. so both of those things combined it just didn't change that much um but there was a stark difference between what rich people wore and what poor people wore um even down to yeah. color palette and material, especially the amount of material, the amount of you know bells and whistles that you had in your outfit, you know, poor people fashion <laughs> didn't change that much. Um, even though rich people fashion was also very slow comparatively right. to now, where in the last couple of years we even have micro trends, which is what I feel a worse iteration from already like the fast that. fashion yeah. cycle. Um, so. You know, be a be a terrible rich person from the 18th century and don't throw out your clothes.
0: <laughs> yeah, because they were only wearing them maybe once or right. twice a right. season, if that much. So if you were poor, you were wearing your clothes to the ground. So that's why a lot of these clothing as well doesn't withstand, you know, and that's why that stuff isn't in museums because the quality of it wasn't as good. It was like cottons and linens and things that could be eaten by moths. They just fall apart. Like you weren't – Right. You weren't sleeping in the best conditions either. So like dust and mud mm-hmm. and all of this stuff that was happening. And yeah. And like, if you were rich, you were keeping your nicer garments and trunks and hope chests and semi preserving them and only wearing them once.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, what's interesting is that I feel like, you know, so the vampire lovers, for example, which I, again, once they got into like the vampire lovers era of hammer Um, And a little bit before that, kind of like the late 60s, their gothic horror films stylistically didn't change too much. And so just using the vampire lovers is like an example that kind of encompasses most of their usually 18th century um, gothic horror pieces. The color palette remained very much Rococo, but the style was not at all Rococo. You know, it wasn't Marie Antoinette, white powdered face, big, you know, ridiculous hair, Um, which by the way, the Kirsten Dentz Marie Antoinette film, another great example of a period piece that's done fantastic. Uh, that is done in a modern way yes. and made to mm-hmm. be a surreal interpretation of Marie Antoinette. One of my favorite films ever. Yeah, it kickstarted so my love of uh, fashion history, for sure. Also just history in general, because I was like, what's wrong with these people? Um, (laughs) then I looked into it and I'm like, oh, they shit all over the palace. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, so it's interesting the way that they've interpreted that. And I don't necessarily think that it was like, let's use a Rococo color palette with a 19th century silhouette I think it was more that was the like best period accuracy they could do they're like that's fine or maybe they liked the cut of the dress better because it made the girls look sexier and I think the color influence was more so like you had mentioned um derivative of the colors of that era which was you know bright colors pastels you know there was in the late 60s one of the um if it wasn't a super vibrant you know greens and purples and hot pinks it was candy colored versions of those. And so you kind of saw that a little bit of a mix because we do see some brightly colored dresses mixed in with the pastels. Um, But yeah, it felt very much of its time um, in that sense. Uh, But yeah, the fabrics that they used to make these dresses um, were literally just sheer fabric. Like it had nothing to do with being period accurate at all. It was just sexy, which is also why you see many scenes probably deliberately written this way where the women are in um, nightgowns, because that's an easy way to have them be sure. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, Although an exception to, like, the sexy thing, minus maybe, like, the boobs, which were always ever-present in Hammer films, um, the twins at the beginning of Twins of Evil, I remember them wearing this kind of, like, silly outfit, where they were wearing matching dresses with... A little hat with a big feather, and it was kind of this olivey green. And then they had this um, this collar that was gold, and it had um, like zigzagged colour almost. But it did have the scoop neck, and you did see their boobs, not as much as you saw them later. But and I like don't associate the look of Twins of Evil at all with this particular outfit where they enter. But they get sexier. As the film goes on. Right. It's their day yeah.
0: boobs versus their... Yeah, exactly. Boobs.
1: Like when I think of Twins of Evil, I think <laughs> of the promo images of them just in an empire waist, cuff sleeve, sheer chiffon nightwear. And that's what I think of. Yeah, And that's honestly what I think of when I think of a lot of hammer horror. And I think that especially like the vampire lovers, the photo shoot um, that they did for promo with Ingrid Pitt in the blue dress. And I think the um, red like ruby pendant necklace um and then all the girls around her are also in these very similar like chiffon sheer soft like nightgowns um but they're all you know done up with their hair and their makeup um i feel like that poster specifically went a little not viral but in the horror community and even just like retro film lover communities you um, saw that poster pop up a lot in the last couple of years. And so I think that maybe five years ago, our definition of Hammer Girl maybe would have been a little more wide and it would have spread to also the women that, um, the amazing women that were in like the films in the 50s and 60s and the sci-fi's and the crime dramas um, who are equally amazing. But as far as the look of the Hammer Girl, I feel like that poster from The Vampire Lovers defined more so what we think of the Hammer Girl as today.
0: Yeah. And their nightgowns in the film, too, are really reminiscent of. 60s, like, chiffon nightgowns of the mm-hmm. time, which is really interesting, too, where you have those cropped, teddy, like, little yeah. negligees of the 60s. Like, think of Austin Powers, where, they, where they've where they got these like little negligees with the fuzzy collars and, and whatnot. But then in these films, they're just elongated versions of that. So it was really this post-Hays Code sexual revolution that was happening in the 60s, plus the colors of mod fashion, which was in its peak In the mid to late 60s in London. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you had a lot of different influences. Hammer, from what you've told me and from, like, what I've witnessed and, like, researching it and stuff, they really did. They took a lot of risks. And the one thing that I did notice, though, from this documentary that I watched was that they they kept making a lot of references to Rosemary's Baby, Mm -hmm. like, the later... 60s hammer horror films and it's like they wanted to be rosemary's baby but didn't know how to do it in their way to yeah be Rosem- yeah which is really interesting because when you look at the costumes in rosemary's baby she's dressed like a child mm-hmm. like she has these she has like the crop teddy nightgown but it's cotton and it's not chiffon and there's flowers on it it's and girly it's
1: and youthful not island. sexy
0: right right which is Completely, who Rosemary Woodhouse is is that she's this woman who is being controlled by everybody around her. And these women in these films take control of of the situations themselves, even if they are under Dracula's control or whatever. Like they're pretty much in charge of these men. They're they're in charge of the situations that become them in these films, which I think is really interesting that they were trying to be something something yeah. different of
1: the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about just sort of. Like, the impact that Hammer Horror has left on film and horror films, you know, beyond just the sexy costumes and the storylines, you know, despite, you know, paying homage as well to older horror films and, like, German Expressionism and Gothic Monster films. Hammer Horror films also incorporated a lot of, like, the color and the lighting of softcore porn, (laughs) Um, yes. and I thought that yeah. that was interesting because they were more modern in their cinematography techniques as well, just when it came to that alone. And so it kind of created this unique look, um, versus just sort of a cut and dry replication of like a Gothic monster film from like the forties or a noir film. Um, right. and then also the, like the films are shorter, <laughs> which I think, mm-hmm. I think it's, I'm glad that they didn't try and make what felt like, you know, just kind of a, lots of vignettes in a story. They weren't necessarily trying to make like super deep movies. They're trying to make fun movies. And I think that they did. Right. When I think about how Hammer has maybe influenced me in my own work, I also think about how The Love Witch was probably directly inspired by Hammer films. And that, you know, that's one of my favorite modern horror films. But I, you know, think about how women were portrayed in this, but stylistically in the same vein as the way that uh, women and queer people have kind of reclaimed the lesbian vampire subgenre. It's sort of the same thing with Hammer Horror. I think that we love, like, the color and the ridiculousness and, like, The costumes are cute. Like, I love those dresses. It's the only thing that puts a sour taste on my mouth sometimes is the ways in which they're portrayed. Um, You know, spoiler alert with (laughs) lots of women get beheaded (laughs) in these Hammer films. Or, like, the strong female lead will, you know, be avenged by usually Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee, who I also love. But I want to take the stylistic influences that I see in this work and do it in a way that is in favor of the woman. And maybe there's an anti-hero. and Maybe there's a little bit more depth. And I think that it's interesting to see sort of a chain reaction because I do see that happening um, with a lot of horror work now, especially by women, by queer people, by non-binary people, where their gaze is looking at these films that we love and taking what worked. And I think that Mm -hmm. in a way that is what... Hammer did where they took what worked from their predecessors and what inspired them and then they added to it. And that's what's interesting. There's the cycle of creativity um, and progress that you see um in the works of films throughout time. Uh, and
0: yeah a lot
1: of people say like there is no such thing as originality. But I think for me, like originality comes from inspiration. You know, it's it's looking at something yeah. and being like, wow, this is really cool. And that it inspires a new idea or a new way to do something and you, you know, take bits and pieces. And that's kind of what Hammer did where they melded what they saw working, you know, as far as box office numbers or revenue, Um, but also stylistically, uh, it did feel like they were thinking of, um, you know, how could we make this a little more unique and as much as they probably were thinking more about you know revenue than they were thinking about how can we portray women in a way that
0: <laughs> you know right yeah people no, weren't they thinking like weren't that,
1: thinking but. like that and I like the idea of being able to enjoy it for what it is and enjoy it stylistically and even if you know again like with the lesbian vampire thing like I know that the men making these films weren't <laughs> thinking about like. Women are going to love this. I enjoy the lesbian vampire films. And I think it's really cool to see very powerful women also loving women in the same vein. And so like Ingrid Pan, the vampire Lovers* is an amazing character. I wish she had a better ending. But um, mm-hmm. that's what's cool now. Like looking back on Hammer Horror is being able to be like, I really liked that stylistically. It would be really cool to see a woman who is sexual who can be very powerful, um, and whether she's an antagonist or an anti hero, um, or just a strongly written, uh, depthful protagonist, um, I think that's what's cool about it. And so, uh, even though I think Hammer Films has its issues, as do most films at this time, I think women are allowed to enjoy it. You know, I think that yeah. maybe there were men who made these films that. Didn't want women to enjoy it or weren't Thinking about how women would feel but I think that liking it is kind of radical And that's what's cool about you know looking At retro film uh, and retro horse Specifically is allowing ourselves To like what we like in the face Of people maybe not wanting it to be for us Or it not being made for us and then as a Filmmaker being able to draw Inspiration uh, from films That maybe weren't made in your favor
0: <laughs> Yeah absolutely and the, the way You were talking about too of, of Their treatment of women within these films You can really see how they didn't progress past the early 70s. Exactly. A a lot of these men, it was all men. It was all older men that were directing these films and writing these films. And a lot of them blamed films like The Exorcist in 73 Mm. and this new shift in genre that came about in the 70s. They really blamed that for why. Hammer did not flourish past the 71, 72 mark. I mean, it kind of did. Like it still made films, but they were more exploitative than, you know, these like robust films that they were making mm-hmm. up until that point. And and I think it's what we're finding today in the genre is that, you know, the the really harmful phrase of, well, it's always been done this way, didn't allow them to open themselves up to different voices, different ways of looking at the genre. And they wanted to keep it this escapism. But we talk about this all the time. That I mean. England or America or not. When you project war into the homes. As they did mm-hmm. in the 60s. You can com- you look at things in a completely different light. Like horror is now. Oh god. Like man. Quote unquote man is horror. Like man is the monster. We are doing this to each other. We are creating these atrocities. As humans to each other. And so. The idea of vampires and the idea of, you know, creatures and all of these things don't really scare us as much as something like Last House on the Left that also came out in 1972, but was about, you know, a woman being kidnapped and then raped and murdered and her parents taking vengeance on that because that's the shit that was happening at the mm-hmm. time so like i you know it's a shame that they weren't able to progress and change and and one of the men who was speaking in the documentary was even saying like if we had found our carpenter of england if we had found our craven of england that maybe you know our, our william peter blatty of england that maybe you know it would have been different for him or films
1: yeah that's really interesting yeah i mean especially in that time um you know, again, like those psychosexual films were very much a thing, but I think that that influence influenced films in so many different ways and right. Hammer took a much different approach, I think, than what the general changing times of film um, were taking. Uh, and they and it, and it did still, you know, even if it wasn't, I actually don't know if it was their intention, but the sexual nature of these films made the gore a lot more disturbing. And I think that It wasn't written in a way that was meant to make it more disturbing. It it felt more like fan service in a way. Um, It didn't feel like, oh, this is really fucked up and we're supposed to think this is fucked up. Like, I think we're supposed to just enjoy seeing the blood and the gore and, and the tits.
0: Yeah, I think when you make multiple films over the course of like a year in the same formula and you're using the same actors it you know it kind of gets fan serving because you're like oh well this is making me money right I mean, it still happens today too so I think that was another pitfall like it's hard it, these jobs are hard working in movies making movies are really hard work and to sustain that I mean they had like 14 15 years of sustainable film right. which I think is incredible for a film company to do at that caliber that they were making these films at. absolutely so, yeah I
1: mean they were really churning them out kudos
0: you know yeah well, and, and I mean, even Universal has had ebbs and flows in their filmography right. throughout history. Right.
1: And they, you know, they wanted to survive and surviving as a film production company, especially at this time where, again, film companies were still super new. I mean, even now, I feel like I could say that they're super new. Filmmaking as a profession is also super new, um, you know, in the grand scheme of history. And so it was kind of survival of the fittest. Um, Especially for England, because again, like Hitchcock had to go
0: to LA. So I was interested to find out that they were still making films. Um, That was what Mm. shocked me. So actually, I amend my statement from earlier. My first Hammer horror film was actually *The Woman in Black*. Oh, because you didn't. Unbeknownst to me. Right, unbeknownst to me. But again, it. uh, But that's like a more modernized gothic darkness that we're used to. Mm -hmm. So it's not this colorful, you know, gothic dark gothic literature film that they were doing. So it is in a different, it's in a very different direction now. So it's very interesting. But yeah, I um, I'm definitely interested to watch more Hammer horror because it is a bit of a blind spot in my horror canon. But um, yeah, it's it's a yeah they have some interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's really
1: interesting to kind of take a look at Hammer. What, um, what feels like they've made so much, but when you think about the, the the content, it feels a little surface level. It feels like there's not much going yeah. on there. Um, but when you think about the impact of you know how their legacy has changed horror specifically. Um, And even sci-fi with, you know, quartermaster Experiment was massive. They've had a lot of influence and a lot of impact and they have a lot of fun stuff and it's kind of fun to look at the style of what we think of kind of the uh, iconification, if you will, of the Hammer Girl specifically. Um, You know, because they're alongside these horror legends. We have Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee kind of at the helm of Hammer um, who are already horror icons. The style of these women and the characters that they played, I think really appeals to us just because it feels again, like a pretty unique look and just that alone is influential as well. Um, And yeah, I think it's actually pretty cool that hammer came back in the 2010s. I also didn't know this until recently, Um, but yeah, they did the woman in black. They also did the quiet ones um, amongst a lot of other things. Um, But yeah, they're also still kind of in the genre Horror um, specific arena to this day, which is pretty cool. But yeah, that's kind of summarizes all of my thoughts on, you know, Hammer. Julian do you have any kind of last thoughts on the genre in general? Or did I say genre? I feel like Hammer is, is its own subgenre. It is, it is. <laughs> in a sense. its own subgenre,
0: yeah. Um, I, yeah, I mean, their stuff is unlike anything else at the time because when I think of 60s horror, there's like a couple of Hitchcock films. That come to mind but it's really a blind spot so they were really the ones that were doing yeah. it for all, the whole decade totally and you know they were doing things that like we've said before that, that nobody else was doing and that was really apparent to me when i was watching dr jekyll and sister hyde which we had touched upon in our gender identity episode but it was interesting to then watch right. this like internal struggle that he's having and it, it is like, I don't see how nobody didn't think it was queer-coded at the time. Right. Like, it is very apparent right.
1: that it is a queer-coded film. I know. It's like with all the lesbian vampire films, history will say that they were gal pals. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, well, if you guys have any Hammer Horror favorites, anything that yes. you want us to cover specifically, any film, um, any questions for us in general about Hammer Horror, let us know and we can totally do some more film-specific or even – you know, person specific. We love our Christopher Lees. We love our Ingrid Pitts. Um, let us know. Let us know if you have anything specific that you'd like us to cover or any questions that we could answer. If you're curious about historical accuracy, fun facts, let us know. That's what we are here for. <laughs> or if you
0: want to hear us rant and rave about the historical inaccuracy.
1: That is right. Our lines are open. Yeah, always open for that. <laughs> um one of my favorite things to do (laughs) yeah well thank you guys so much for listening don't forget to follow us on instagram at to die for podcast and on twitter at dive podcast that's d-y-e and next time you go into your closet remember that your pieces could also be to die for